You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast powered by Globig. We cover topics designed to accelerate your global business. Hello, I'm Ann Stewart Zakwija, your host, the COO of Globig. Today's hot topic is B2B content marketing with a focus on providing content that is localized and country specific. Our honored guest today is Mel Roth. And Mel, did I say your name correctly? Uh, yeah, that's about right, but it's hard to pronounce, you know, so Mail would be the correct Mayle. way to pronounce it, but, Mayle. you know, no hard feelings. <laughs> okay, thank you. Mail is a consultant in content strategy for Scompler, which is a startup acquired by Scribblelive, and Mail is based in Germany. He's half French, half German, and he graduated with a master's degree in international marketing in 2012, and he now works on international projects with a focus on inbound and content marketing strategies. Today we'll be focusing on B2B content marketing uh, with him, and so let's get started. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us, Mel. Could you <laughs> just spend a few minutes uh, introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to do what you're doing today? Oh, sure. Um, well, that's kind of a long story, so I'll kind of make it short. Um, so, yeah, I'm half French, half German. Um, I studied in France. I lived in Ireland for uh, for a year. Um, so that's kind of my international background. I decided to focus on marketing um, back in 2010, I think. Um, well, yeah, and I started with a startup a few days, um, uh, not a few days, a few years later when I um, did my master's degree. Um, so I started with a startup in online marketing because, you know, all the jobs were in online marketing. <laughs> and it was a platform um, which actually labeled itself, itself a platform for content marketing. Um, so I read a few books um, or a lot of books. Um, I got interested in that concept. I actually love it. Um, and then I moved on, so I became a project manager, um, a consultant a little later, and now I'm a consultant with, um, with Scompler, um, which is an international um, business, actually Scribblelivius, but Scompler is a tool which allows you to um, structure processes around content marketing, etc. Um, I won't do a sales pitch here, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a consultant for that business. I help um, businesses implement actually processes around content marketing, etc. So partly on international projects, yeah. Great. Well, thank you. So I think what would be helpful for our listeners is if you first give us a quick overview of what content marketing is and why it's so important to have a content marketing strategy. Well, um, content marketing, I'm sure you've heard of content marketing since um, it's a very hot topic nowadays. Um, as I like to say, um, content marketing is what companies do when they notice that they cannot afford not to be interesting anymore. Or if they notice um, that it's not, or it's more sustainable to earn attention instead of buying attention. So in other words, um, there are numerous studies showing that advertising is becoming less and less effective. Um, in B2C even more than in B2B, but it's, that's true for B2B as well. Um, and, you know, ad blockers, it's not just a trend. Um, it's consumers saying, for God's sake, stop interrupting me with your advertising. Um, so it goes beyond the mere, the mere ad blocker problem or some kind of other tool that would, be, that would en enable you to do that. Um, consumers are just empowered to find more information on their own. 
um, so they don't need companies yelling at them how how cool they are or um, how useful the products are. Um, they're actually more interested in, in in solutions than in products or you know um, the solution that a product represents. So in that sense, um, let me quote Seth Godin. I'm sure you've heard of him, mm-hmm. who said. Content marketing is the only marketing um, left in that sense. And a more traditional um, and widely accepted definition would be um, the one from the Content Marketing Institute, um, written by Joe Poluzzi, who said, content marketing is a strategic marketing approach with emphasis on strategic, um, focused on creating and distributing valuable, relevant, and consistent content to attract and retain a clearly defined audience. And that's the marketing part in it, and ultimately to drive profitable customer action. Right. So it's moving away from blasting ads at people and writing and providing information that they will seek out and find that is relevant to them, or there will be ways that it gets presented to them, and then that will lead them to your company. Exactly. So that's like one focus would be to say, okay, we're going to focus on SEO, on being found or getting um, getting people to find us, um, you know, when they Google something, for example. But that's not the only kind uh, or it's not the only way that consumers will find you. So part of it is also um, knowing what your, I call it, the content flow is going to be. So if I subscribe to something, um, because I think it's interesting. I'm not going to Google the new blog post each and every time or the new article or whatever. Um, I'm going to subscribe to it. So I need to have a consistent editorial um, approach to what I'm actually saying. So it's not just um, waiting before people Google something. It's also becoming a publisher. And the difficult thing in it is to align marketing goals with what you're actually publishing. So, yeah. Yeah, and so then, in other words, having some things planned out in advance and lined up so that you have a constant, consistent flow and message that fits together. Exactly. That's it. Right. So you have lived in both France and Germany, and you're trilingual, which is great. You've got a unique perspective on how business is done differently from country to country. Again, you've mentioned that you also lived in Ireland. It's not uncommon to see an American company, in fact, you just wrote a blog about this recently, an American company that has only operated within the United States assume that they use content marketing in their own country and that same thing they use there will easily work in other countries. And so I'm pretty sure it's safe to say that you would not agree with that. And in fact, even from EU country to EU country, Uh, there are many differences. And so today it'd be great if you could share your insights and expertise to help non, specifically since you're living in Germany, we were going to talk about non-German companies being successful in B2B content marketing there, but also you've seen it across other countries. So maybe you can help us with what to avoid and how to um, increase success and those, what those successful strategies might look like. So should we get started? Sure. Um, let's do this. Okay. okay. So we'll start a little bit about the German digital infrastructure. And so can you tell our listeners how digitally advanced Germany is and say compared to the U.S. and other European countries, where does it stand and since it's part of the EU and a successful economy, people might just assume that it's the same in Germany as in other Western or European countries. Um, well, you know, I would say that um, 
Germany would be or is indeed less advanced than other EU countries in terms of digital infrastructure. But, you know, we're not cavemen walking around and not knowing what an iPhone is. But um, in terms of infra infrastructure, um, there are several studies showing this, um, including one from the European Union, by the way, uh, which ranks Germany number 10 in Europe. Um, so according to different factors, I don't have, have them um, in my head right now. Um, but you, you'd expect a higher rank for a country like Germany, mm -hmm. um, actually like Denmark or um, other Scandinavian countries. Um, they're, they're far, um, or Germany is far behind them. So especially a large part of, of um, you know, in industrial businesses, it's a, it's a huge strength in the economy, in the German economy. Um, and they heavily rely on, on this made in Germany label. So you have this label and, and you, um, for example, in China, people would um, expect German made products to be very high quality. So um, they rely heavily on, on this label. Um, but there has been a program which is called Industry 4.0 in Germany, or it's actually still a program um, which is running today. Um, and it's not as, you know, it's to digitalize the economy, basically. Um, and it's not as, as efficient as you would expect it to be. Um, and German manufacturers are kind of, um, you know, running late on the schedule. Um, and German, you know, they... they German businesses tend to invest a lot less than um, than their American counterparts in, in digital infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the of the problem. Um, and that's why I would say that in B2B in general, um, the infrastructure is kind of a little bit behind um, compared to other EU countries, and especially um, with regards to, or compared to US businesses. It's partly due to regulation, but I guess we'll talk about that a little later. <laughs> yeah. So. What, what would you say this means for companies that want to market online to German businesses? What, what tactics should they use to get through? Um, well, it's difficult to be very general. Um, so that depends on the industry and what you're trying to market. Like, is it a software or is it, um, I don't know, pens or something? But to be very general about it, um, before launching a product or a service in another country, I would always analyze the local context um, and very, very um, thoroughly and if possible by working with a local um, in your industry, like in Germany or in the country um, you want to enter. Um, I don't know if it has to be a, um, um, a consultant or maybe just a colleague who, um, who's in the country. Um, if you don't have a colleague in the country at all, um, you could uh, go to trade shows and maybe talk to people, etc. But always um, work with a local who knows the local context because there are many nuances and, and kind of details um, which make up the big picture. Um, but yeah, let's take the example of a software, for example. Um, maybe the market wouldn't be ready for a product if... Um, businesses don't have the necessary infrastructure to, to support it in general, um, or people working in the business, in the actual business, or the potential client, basically, the people who actually use the product, um, they won't be using it because the context is different and they're not used to this kind of um, software. So they might not see the value in it and then not adopt it properly and adoption rate goes down. Then people um, in the, within the business say, okay, our people don't work, um, don't actually work with the software. Um, this will result in a high churn rate um, with your German clients. And obviously that's not a sustainable approach. So you'll sell maybe on the short, short term if, um, if your marketing is good. 
but then again, um, you know, you'll have a high churn rate. So you might want to take um, appropriate measures by offering trainings you would not have to offer in the US. So that's again, adding a service to your product. Um, that would that might help in that case. So my advice in general would be to run a thorough analysis with a simple framework. Um, it's one I learned when I did my master's actually, and I still apply it um, because it helps you think of different factors you have to um, take into account. It's called the PESTEL framework. Um, I don't know if our listeners have heard of, of it, but it stands for political. So the P for political, E for economic, um, and then the other you know, um, social, technological, environmental, and legal. So it just helps you, um, you know, paint a, a complete picture of the, of the local context. And it will help by providing a more meta picture of what's actually happening in the market. And then you'll want to summarize in a SWOT to evaluate these factors and, and compare with, um, with internal resources. Right. I don't know if I went too far with my answer. No, <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. Really what you're saying, and it doesn't, only apply to Germany, it applies to any country you're going into that you really need to take the time to research and analyze and understand where, where you're going, the environment, all of those various factors and get some local people on the ground to help you with that and make sure you are on track with it. Exactly. That might be the most important um, thing to actually talk to people who are um, in the country you want to enter. Exactly. And then, but you're saying that that could be an industry, industry specific person. It could be a, an acquaintance, somebody you've worked with it, or it could be a consultant. There are many ways to get that information. Yeah, obviously. I mean, um, you know, consultants, and that's what they do in terms of um, in terms of providing advice for businesses. But if we're talking to startups, maybe um, they don't have the funds um, or the resources necessary to hire a consultant, um, or maybe the person uh, did not get the approval of management to hire a consultant, but to go international. So in that case, you might want to activate your network. Um, and then see if there's people um, locally again. Um, if you know someone in a U.S. business who has someone in the market you want to enter, you might want to um, get in touch with that person. So there are many different ways. You know, I'm not trying to say that consult that you have to hire consultants. Right. Um, but yeah, talking to or, or you know running surveys, talking to people who are actually in the target market um, is a must do. <laughs> and there are options for people who don't have a big budget, there are still many great ways to get the information that will give you a more informed uh, understanding of where you're going and a better ability to make good decisions. Yeah, actually, in, in some cases, in very specialized industries, it might be a better option to talk to people who are actually in the industry and kind of get a, getting around hiring a consultant, um, because that consultant might not know the industry perfectly well. So exactly you also mentioned that you may be introducing say a software product that people aren't familiar with it just doesn't fit into their framework in how they how they live when you introduce it and so find ways to help them understand and under learn why this is a useful thing so don't just 
drop it in and not support it afterwards and find ways to engage people and train them on how to use it. Um, yeah, actually, you know, especially with software or products which are intended um, or, so, or uh, products which people should use on a regular basis and they're, that are not like self-explanatory, you need to make sure, and that's true not just for international um, marketing, but also for your marketing at home um, or, you know, in brackets at home, um, yeah. that you have to make sure that people see the value in what you're actually selling because like if there's no value in what, you're, in, in, in what you sell, um, you know, you won't have a sustainable marketing strategy. But um, if there's a value which is kind of more complicated to extract, you need to make sure that they adopt the product properly so that you have a more sustainable approach to it. Um, and then it would make sense. Maybe um, you, you don't have to have people um, you employ in the local market. You could have um, kind of a licensing um, thing for, for trainings. Um, I think there are people who do that in, in certain um, areas. Um, there are agencies specialize, um, you know, on training for, I don't know, internal social networks, for example. Um, but you need to make sure that people actually use the product, how it was, um, you know, how it was intended to be used, um, because that's going to be more sustainable. Exactly. So let's move on to media consumption in Germany. How would you say how is media consumed in Germany, specifically in B two B? Is it is it more traditional? Is it digital? Um, Again, that's a pretty broad question, but it is. <laughs> I, I, I understand. As a country, so so some countries embrace digital way more than others. Some countries tend toward the traditional. They still watch TV or read their newspaper, and they're not look, looking for information as much online. I'm, could you could you categorize Germany as a country? That that may be just asking too much because, of course, there are many. Oh, yeah, no, I can, I can. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> um, I can actually because um, not so far. Uh, you know, I think it was a, a few months ago. I read a study from um, Reuters, the agency, um, and they analyzed the media consumption in different countries in the EU. Um, and what they found about Germany was pretty much in line with um, what I observed. Um, media consumption, I mean, especially in B2B, right? Um, media consumption is still quite traditional and um, either people read the print magazines that, um, you know, have been around for decades um, or they they stick with the publishers, the, the traditional publishers in the industry, um, because they trust them, but then they will uh, move to digital channels like um, getting the newsletter or going to their website to um, consume in a, you know, in a, in a digital way. And the important, you know, the point being that they stick with traditional media um, and, you know, they'll get the newsletter of the trade magazine or um, whatever. And that, in that sense, you'd better work with those publishers. And PR might be less digitalized um, than I imagine it um, to be the case in the U.S. But overall, Germans get their information less from the Internet than people in the U.S., um, which, which is, you know, also relative being the, the second medium after TV. So Internet's pretty big. Again, we're not cavemen. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's relative, so um, it's less digitalized than in, the US, than in the U.S., especially in B2B. In some industries, 
um, like the industrial um, industry or in the industrial industrial sector, you might want to emphasize um, PR and getting attention of people who read these magazines, maybe hear about it in, in, in those um, or hear about the, the business in the magazines. And then they might move to a digital channel going to a website and then you have to ch the chance to get them to subscribe if your content is good. But um, yeah, that, that would be my advice. Like go more um, through PR in the, in the overall communication mix than you might do in, um, in the US or even in the UK. Um, yeah. I think what I heard you say is that the Germans tend to stick with their traditional sources of information, their trusted sources. They may start in say print uh, or magazines, uh, newspapers, and then they branch out into the digital arms of those same trusted sources. So yeah. what a company would want to do is understand who the trusted sources are within their industry and reach out to them so that they can go along with that trusted relationship. And then ultimately someone might make the transition from that trusted source where they heard about them onto the companies, the company that's trying to establish a business, go onto their platform or their website and, and start to consume their information. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Do you, could you talk for a moment about, as you say, Germans are not cavemen. They are also digital. Some of the top. I, I just wanted to clarify this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I don't think anybody thought that Germans <laughs> Cavemen, but thank you. What are the top digital and social platforms that you're seeing? Again, Facebook is, is huge around the world. In some countries, it's used much more for B2B, in others less. So maybe you could talk about the top digital and social platforms and then how Germans use them. Um, yeah, sure. As I mentioned, people stick with, with those traditional publishers. Um, and, you know, they, they don't search um, a lot for blogs where they consume, where, you know, specialized blogs um, where they would consume um, content in their industry. And there are actually very few in, in some industries, um, less than, than in the US. And one, one thing that came to mind um, instantly when you said Facebook, um, of course, Facebook is huge in Germany. Actually, it's a, you know, like in many countries, the biggest social network. Yes. But um, Germans like to separate work and private very strictly. So it's less likely that you'll get them to like on Facebook or um, distribute your content through Facebook by using, um, you know, by using Facebook's data because. Um, I don't know, a marketing manager might be on Facebook, but um, he'll say, yeah, that's just private for me, friends, family, et cetera. So you won't um, um, give, give the information or the data to Facebook that he's a marketing manager at company X. So you won't be able to kind of target him. Um, so in that sense, like the, the separation between work and, and private um, is kind of important because, um, yeah, you, it, it'll be more difficult on, on Facebook to establish a B2B presence. Um, and I think the platform of choice would be Xing. Um, it's a it's a pretty German kind of network. <laughs> it's a um, lot like LinkedIn. The German for people who understand what LinkedIn, you could perhaps call it a German version of LinkedIn. 
Exactly. Um, you know, they do a pretty bad job at keeping people engaged on the platform, getting them to consume content on the platform. LinkedIn does that very well. Um, so LinkedIn is kind of picking up in Germany and growing a lot. So, you know, LinkedIn might become more important um, also because of the international aspect. But for now, Xing seems to be the way to go if you want to have a brand presence and target um, and target people. But um, yeah, LinkedIn is picking up and um, LinkedIn might become more and more important. One thing I would like to mention here, um, you know, apropos um, social networks, <laughs> Twitter has always struggled um, to convince users to use it in Germany. Mm. Although it's not because they don't get PR or something, you know, they do get mentioned on TV and um, especially like um, in, in soccer during big soccer tournaments like soccer is very big in Germany um, they say like this player has posted something on Twitter etc so it's not that it's not present people know Twitter but Germans tend to consider it as um, you know being not very serious because mm. partly of the character limit and and you know tweets are very short um, so Germans tend to tend to say if I say something I want to be able to explain myself and German words tend to be very long <laughs> so it's difficult to fit everything thing in kind of a one tweet um, and it's also too public um, because like everything you're saying is public and so even for customer support it doesn't have the same traction um, in the US than in the US um, um, here in, in Germany. In France you'd have more Twitter users um, than in Germany for example. That's really interesting and I'm pretty sure that I found you on Twitter of course that oh, would yeah. have your, English, your, your English <laughs> your English Twitter feed, do you use it much yourself? And I, I would just like to say here that clearly you are a, a, a content marketing genius and you really you have a very a, a great digital presence and, and you are providing very valuable content. So you're following your own, your own guidelines. But do you use it much yourself when you're, when you're, providing content in German or do you reserve that primarily for English and French? Actually, um, I think last year I decided um, to open two separate or um, in total three separate Twitter accounts. I had one Twitter account, um, which was like in general for all the languages, but I, I'm kind of obsessed with being relevant for people who want to follow me. And then, you know, I was always thinking about um, if I post this in French, how many German people will see this? And then, you know, they'll think, uh, um, you know, this is not relevant for me. I'm, I'm going to unfollow him or whatever. Um, so I'm kind of, you know, very obsessed with being relevant and interesting for people. So I, I decided like to open one Twitter account for every language. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of managing to feed um, every account with, um, with, you know, valuable content or what I think is valuable content for people who want to follow me. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's important to also for businesses to, you know, with being obsessed of being relevant for, uh, for people who follow you. And if you make one bad impression with content, um, it's going to last a lot longer, this bad impression, that if you do an okay impression or a good impression. So it's always important to, um, you know, to, to obsess over relevance. And am I really important? Am I really helping people? Am I really educating them? Um, that's kind of the spirit behind my Twitter accounts. <laughs> and, and you provide a perfect example of localization. So language localization, for instance, do you 
and and we we at Globig talk a lot about language localization, and it's not necessarily just translating the words. It's 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 more than that. Do you find yourself with and and you have the advantage of essentially being local in all of those three languages. You you have spent time in countries where they are spoken. You understand the cultures. Do you find yourself when you're if you've written a blog, you might translate it into multiple languages and then spend a bit more time localizing beyond the language? Or how do you handle that? Um, that's a very good question. I've thought about it a lot. Um, actually, there's one factor um, before anything else. Like when I write for my blog, I do it outside of work. Um, so I don't have a lot of time to like write articles. That was one problem. So I don't have time to translate every article. Um, or every blog post I write into um, two other languages. And then, you know, it got me thinking. And there are, of course, there are some aspects um, where you could just translate and it would be valid for, for the local context. Um, but I prefer to write every single blog post just in one language. And even if I do translate it, like I wrote a blog post once on what we can learn from Spotify in terms of content marketing. Um, and then I translated it into, I think it was into German, was it? Yeah, into German. And as I was translating it, I thought of different people I talked to and the context is quite different. So I might have the same topic, but then localize it in the, in the sense that I um, use other words. Um, I'm, I'm quite obsessed with uh, words as well because, you know, I... I I, I did a literature degree in France um, a while back in 2007 and I had philosophy and one of my favorite ideas was, was that um, language shapes the way we think about concepts. So it's very important to use the right words. That's why I don't actually like the term content marketing a lot. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, the words you use, um, it's not just about translation, but it's about like people grasping what you're gonna tell. I mean, I know I'm, I'm being quite philosophical here, but 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 your but your point is the context is as important as the words. Exactly, because like some words will be perfectly neutral, and when you hear them, you're like, there's like my favorite German word. Um, it's gewöhnungsbedürftig. Um, um, so it means um, you have to get you have to get uh, um, your head around an idea or something. You just have to think about it and maybe you'll get accustomed to it. That's like one word in German. Yes. <laughs> um, and the, you can't actually translate it. So yeah, that's, it's that one sentence. But if you say it in Germany, it will usually be like, the context will be, I'm not trying to say that it's not good and it's shit, <laughs> but right. it actually is. It has kind of a negative aspect to it. If you just hear the word, you know, the word just says, yeah, I have to get used to it. But actually it means, yeah, I'm not going to say it's bad, but I think it is, but I'm going to be polite about it. Right. So same way when you write, you know, um, there's, there's a lot of context to take into account when you, when you write something, when you say something, when you transport some kind of content. So here's a, here, here are some takeaways I, I am getting from this. The first being that you, you really truly don't have a message that is universally just translated and shared. You sometimes may only have a message for one country. If you do choose to share it with another country, you 
take some time to contextualize it and, and make it relevant for that other country. And that there may still be an underlying theme that is useful and important, but it's more than just translating the words. You need to put it into their, their worldview, let's say. Exactly. And so I think this, this leads me to a, a great segue here, which is influencer marketing. And I would consider you an influencer. And so we've touched on this a little bit before, but influencer marketing in Germany. I've, I've, I've heard you say that a person can't just show up and become an influencer. They, they need to work their way into it. And I'm curious your thoughts around influencer marketing in Germany. And then really how does one become an inf a trusted influencer, which I, I believe you've touched on already. And how does that compare with other European countries, for instance? Um, interesting question. First of all, I don't consider myself an influencer because um, <laughs> like I, I like it if people like what I say and if they pay attention, I love it, but I, I don't consider myself an influencer. Anyway, um, it's hard to say in general, um, if influencer marketing is big in B2C, it is a big topic. Um, we see it pop up a lot. I mean, more and more at events and conferences as, um, you know, being best practices and whatever brands working with influencer. Um, so of course it is um, because like the marketers reflex of buying attention, uh, whoever has it, like if it's media, you just place an ad. If it's an influencer, you buy the influencer. Um, so the marketer's reflex of buying attention if, instead of building something which would be worth paying attention to, um, you know, that's universal. So it is big in Germany as well. Um, in B2B, not that much though, um, because there are little B2B influencers. Um, I mean, obviously it depends on the industry again. In, in marketing, it's kind of different because we're marketers, so we like to market ourselves as well. Um, <laughs> but my theory is that it's linked um, to this strict separation between work and private life that people value so much. So you put um, less time maybe than someone who would, who would have an entrepreneurial, it's a hard word to say in English, entrepreneurial mindset. Um, I mean, that's, you know, very generalistic, um, but that's my theory about it. But in B2B, you have um, like a lot less influencers than I would um, see in, in the US, for example, even in France, um, Ireland, not so sure. Um, but yeah, in B2B, there are less influencers. And so a company could, as we talked about before, they need to create a relationship with the trusted sources of information. And in that sense, that other company is an influencer and they are sharing in that aura if they can create that relationship. I would say, yeah, the influencers are like more the traditional influencers, which are basically media. Um, so you have journalists in that industry, um, um, you know, in the industry you're in. Um, so it's basically, it's PR, right? right. Um, I, you know, I like to say that Germans are, um, I put it in brackets always, right? Um, no bullshit people. So it takes more than just a few nice inspirational quotes on Instagram or showing you in the gym with a cool aspirational idea or something um, to become an influencer. Um, that's not the way I think about influencers in, in, in the US, right? <laughs> just want to clarify it, but I see it a lot more in, in the US. 
Um, so I'm exaggerating it, but um, it ties back to what I mentioned earlier. Um, Germans want proof of concept. Um, did I actually mention this? I think so. Well, um, they want data. They want proof. They're not just going to take your word for it. Exactly. So Germans have emotions too, um, right? That's like we're human <laughs> beings. But in B2B, we tend to be very focused on, okay, what's the real proof here? It's not just enough to have some kind of an inspirational element or some kind of mission-driven messaging. We're going to change the world, with us, which is kind of very, you know, American. Um, and, you know, they want proof of concept, statistics, numbers, case studies, um, so that you can prove that it actually works what you do and that you have a clear, that's important as well, having a very clear structure, like step one, step two, step three, and that's how we do it. They're very process oriented. Yeah. So if you want to become an influencer in Germany, like you have to show that you know your stuff, um, that you do it with a clear structure. Um, and yeah, that's, <laughs> I guess and that's that it's relevant and, and data driven. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have anything else to say about trust in Germany? It's a big driver for Germans in their purchase decisions. So we, we covered a lot of that, but it sounds like I'm not going to take your word for it. I want data. I want proof. I'll take my time. Would you say there's an element of, of time and wait and see in that? Oh yeah, definitely. Because I mean, that's a cultural aspect as well. Because um, hierarchies in the U.S. tend to be more flat than in Germany. In Germany, you always have what we call a—I don't know if it's a general, um, a universal term—we call it um, um, the buying center, where you have several people of often different silos, or anyway, within one department. Um, who actually kind of talk to each other, not, you know, not really between silos, but <laughs> they talk. Um, and, you know, since the hierarchy is not as flat in the U.S. as in the U.S., um, you'd have to have more time if you have a product. Like software is a per perfect example. Um, if you have, um, let's say, someone who's on, on, on your website, um, you generate the lead um, and you find out that the person is um, the person who, you know, was was um, given the task to research different products. So you're going to have to create this link between the person and the person you actually want to talk to who has the budget, authority, etc. to buy. Um, and you're going to have to take more time because in Germany, people will have like one month, uh, a monthly meeting, for example, and they won't talk between those meetings about solutions. Um, but rather in that monthly meeting. And you know what I'm saying here is that if the, you know, since the hierarchy is less flat than in the US, um, you'd have maybe to, um, to consider, you know, that it takes more time. But you asked about trust as well. Um, one thing I do want to mention is data privacy and data protection. Right. That was the next section we were going to go to. So perfect timing. Okay. So we're talking about trust. So yeah. Let's let's do that. So let's talk about data privacy and data protection and trust. Let's you go start in with what you had in mind. Um, you know, data protection. There's there's a law. I'm going to start with this because it's a nice word. Um, there's a law in Germany or a set of regulations. It's called Datenschutz, and you know, it's like it sounds. It's like very strict. <laughs> yes. Um, Datenschutz in Germany, the, the data protection regulations are very strict. I think it's one of the most strict um, um, regulations or set of regulations in the world about 
data and, and privacy protection, how you handle data, etc. Um, it used to be big even before the NSA scandal, but needless to say, after the NSA scandal, it's going to be like, especially if you're in technology, software, et cetera, et cetera it's, it's, it's always going to be um, um, a factor in the, in the buying process. Um, so you're going to have, obviously, especially if, you're, if you market a CRM or um, um, person-related data, you're always going to have to answer the question, what you, do you do the, with the data? How do you use the data? Is it going to be stored in the cloud or is it going to be local? Um, even, I mean, even if you're e-commerce, for example, people are always going to look for that information, what you're going to, um, you know, what you're going to do with the data. Um, so, you know, it becomes kind of part of how you can market um, your product or service, because if you do comply with, um, with the German data protection laws, it's something you can market because people are going to know that you're an American business. Um, and especially in B2B, if you're, like I said, a CRM, if you place prominently on the website that you, um, um, you know, if you have a label, we are, um, com how do you say, compliant with um, German data protection laws in general, it can be an advantage for you if you're competing with, um, with someone else on, on that specific um, solution. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very important in Germany. It's, and, and it can be a no-go if you don't say anything. Um, I know of, I don't know if, our, um, if you know it or if our listeners know HubSpot. Yes. Um, HubSpot, you always get the question about data. What's happening with the data at HubSpot? Is it transferred to the US? Is it anonymized? Where is it? Um, you know, is it in, in Ireland since they're located in Ireland? Um, the German, uh, the, the European headquarters anyway. So you're always going to have to answer um, this, this question about data. And, you know, I noticed very strongly with, um, with HubSpot, that's kind of a good example. And they don't provide a clear answer. I mean, that's not a secret, um, me saying this, because I, you know, you can't find it on the website. Um, they don't provide a clear answer. And Germans are not very risk-friendly. Um, um, you have to know that like Germans are the most insured people in the world. That's actually, that's a fact. <laughs> like Germans are very, very um, fond of insurance. They want to be, you know, they're not very, uh, um, they're rather risk averse, let me put it this way. So if there's a hesitation between um, a German business where you know where the data is stored, et cetera, and your solution where it's not quite clear, people are always going to choose um, the option which, um, which is safer for them. So that's like a culture thing, you know. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So what you're saying here is that if you are a company going into Germany and you have a very tight and clear data security policy and process, use that to your advantage and, and prominently display that fact. If you don't, you probably want to figure it out and find a way. And then the final question for me is, what if you're not compliant? What, so not only can you not share that you're not compliant, but what are the risks of not being compliant? Oh, you can get um, like big fines from, from Germany. I don't know if you, if you don't have a, um, an address in Germany or you're not, I'm not quite sure what, what, um, what they can do in that context. 
in that case. Um, but if you do have people in Germany and you have problems with data protection, there's actually, um, it's kind of a business model for some lawyers to um, look up websites and see if they're compliant or not, or, or policies, you know, and if they're not, they will engage um, um, or, or, you know, they will go to court um, and um, I don't know how, what it would be called in English. Um, it would like issue a fine for you. Like if you do not fix this, um, you have to pay this and this amount. Um, so there, there can be a complaint of, um, of, of people who will go through the lawyer and it's kind of, it's, it's a real, it's a real thing over here. Like they go through blogs even and see if there's like an imprint and if there's not, um, they can like send you a letter and you'd, you'd have to pay like a thousand euros, like for a private blog. Um, if, if you're not compliant, so you have to be careful, um, with, with people actually watching what's going on. Um, so never, ever, ever try to hide it. I would say, I would say, and do comply with regulations in Germany. I'm not just saying this because I'm German and I like rules. I'm <laughs> half German, so I'm kind of flexible. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's really important not to hide anything, um, and, and make sure that you're compliant with the regulations. Well, not only not com not hide it, but don't assume that you can quote unquote fly below the radar. There are people actually out, they make it their job to go out and find non-compliant situations and go after those. And, and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're not necessarily from the government. I um, just want right. to say like they're, they're, it can be like lawyers um, who have their law practice and um, that's just how they make money. <laughs> and this is, this is really a critical area to make sure that you have legal counsel and a clear understanding of what is expected and required of you around data privacy. And this is becoming a bigger and bigger issue. And in the United States, the data privacy and protection laws are just not as strict as in other countries. So we can't, an American company cannot assume that it's the same in other countries. And as you say, particularly in Germany. Right. I mean, in France, it's a, it's a big one as well. <laughs> I think really in all of the EU, it, it's a it's a big deal. It does yeah. it does cross those those uh, country boundaries. Um, do you can you talk a little bit about and this ties into the data data gathering in in content marketing? Certainly, the, the tradition has been to oftentimes create content that people want, and then when they request it, they need to fill out a form. And the form might be as simple as name address, or name, first name, last name, email address. It could be more, it could be who, what's your company, what's your position in that company, even how many people are in the company, what's your annual revenue. There are many questions that can be asked. Yeah. And, and so how do, you, how do you view, what do you consider a best practice for, content sharing content giving people access to content how do you how, what do you think is the best practice um that's a difficult question um because it depends on the situation it depends on how you run your business um some businesses are very sales driven um relying on an approach that um, you would get a call very quickly from a from a sales guy um 
It's difficult. I recently read a blog post from my friend Mark Schaefer. I don't know if you know him. Um, Businesses Grow is his blog. Like it's it's a it's a huge blog in in the U.S. Um, and he's written a blog post recently called um, or entitled um, "Should Your Content um, Create Relationships Relationships or Leads?" Mm. Um, I think that's the question because the more we gate content. Um, the more we are actually asking people to fill out forms, obviously. Um, but it has kind of an impact because the more you fill out forms, and I'm, I'm talking on, on a meta um, kind of level here, the more businesses ask you to fill out forms for getting content, the more the expectation grows that if I really do fill out this form, it's, um, it has to be really good. And if the content is not good, it's, it's going to be damaging for a brand, right? Um, so my advice would be to gate less and less and be more customer centric. You can track like how many people clicked on it, how many people viewed it. Um, if you have kind of a login system, you can track um, um, people who's logged in, who has seen what. But, you know, don't gate every piece of content because you want to generate leads um, because a lead, you know, a lead, it, it, you know, it's, it's not customer centric to um, have people filling out forms to access um, some kind of a small checklist, et cetera. If you do provide it for free and um, you don't gate it, it's also more likely to spread and to be recommended to other people. So, you know, it's a question of mix and how you, you function internally with your sales team. If you do have one, um, what you do with the leads, et cetera. But my advice would be um, to gate less and less and to give um to give away for free so that it's uh, so that it spreads better does that make sense it, it makes absolute sense you might get some items that are highly highly desirable you know, something like template templates for example um something you don't put a lot of effort in um but is actually valuable to the user you know don't gate it just give it away for free but like a whole research um, um a report something you've spent a, a big amount of time um creating you know it makes sense to gate it but um yeah i would encourage to gate less and less and if you're gating less and less if your goal is to for instance, create this list of leads or an email marketing or an email list, for instance, think about that. That may, the way that you do that may not be with every form. There are other ways to, to nurture those relationships and bring people along. Sometimes you create a form, sometimes you don't. Was that a, a question? I, 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 I guess didn't... I'm asking. <laughs> I think that's what I just heard you say, that there are times when it's appropriate but do it less and less. Be very, be very thoughtful about when you're doing it. Does it really create value overall to gate something or is there even a greater advantage, advantage to having it shared and increase your presence and people find you? Yeah. Um, you know, there's, I would say if you ask yourself, uh, uh, um, you know, to gate or not to gate a piece of content, um, that means that your content strategy is not good, right? Um, because you have to kind of set um, in advance the expectations of customers when you do have people on your website and you do have content, if you do, um, you have to set expectations. So that's what we're going to give you. And that's what we're going to 
take kind of take in brackets um, if if we want to make business together or if we you know we provide value to you um, and people do understand that you have sales goals as well especially if you're in b2b you know they they do understand that you have to generate leads if you're working with leads um, but like you always have to remember what are people expecting and is it actually appropriate um, to pay the price of my personal information because like I, I always get angry when I see um, download this ebook for free and then I have to fill out like 10 different forms um, or 10, 10 different fields on a form because that's not free like they get a lot of information from me and I, I think a lot of people in B2B will have that same reaction I mean even more in Germany but in the US um, as well the more forms you fill out as a potential customer the more phone calls you're going to get from salespeople, the more um, you're going to apprehend filling out forms because you're not sure. Yeah, I don't want to be called by the sales guy. Um, so, you know, gate less and less in the sense that it's better to um, to surprise people with good content than to actually drive them away because they have uh, um, to fill something out. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I, that was that was a really great discussion. Clubbing has a series called what not to do and in this series people ex people who have expanded internationally or seen others expanding internationally they might offer some suggestions about what hasn't worked so well for them or what they wouldn't do the next time it's almost a friendly way of saying hey i did this Here's something you want to avoid. So without without pointing any fingers or mentioning any names, do you have any good examples of something that you have seen a company perhaps coming into Germany and doing wrong? In fact, again, you 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 had a great blog about this recently, very recently, about don't don't treat all of your Europe is not one thing. So yeah. <laughs> just give a good give an example or two that our our listeners could ponder that they should avoid if they're expanding globally um that would be one thing um yeah there like i hear many many i hear many um decision makers or managers or um even twitter users or whatever i see that a lot that people talk about the european market um that's what you mentioned like my point in in this blog post was there is no european market and that's you know, like that's a fact there are so many cultural differences between the markets um, I mean even in, in, a, in, a, in a country like France or Germany there are cultural differences be between people from the south and the north um, <clears throat> I think in the US you have like more it's 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 more of a of a united country not in the political sense I know what's going on over there over there over there <laughs> but um, that Americans are very proud to be American, so everyone is, um, you know, running around with the flag, etc. And you ha actually have to do it. Um, yeah, kind of exaggerating, right? But <laughs> you have to do it because it's such a big country, and you have to keep people together. Um, Europe is historically um, much older, and you have much um, or way more cultural differences even within one country. And it, you know, if I say it like this, it's just to say. Um, if you think about one country that's not one market, it's impossible to think about Europe as being one market. Um, and as you, you know, you, you asked about um, mistakes not to do. I can think, like, I'm not going to say which business it is or which company. Of not. No. But no. <laughs> um, I, I can think of one 
which actually kind of did exactly the same thing um, in Europe than it actually did in the US. It was hugely successful in the US um, within its industry and did the very same thing in Europe, um, not considering like the local context. Um, and this led to, um, there was also an issue with data protection um, and they didn't quite answer um, data protection issues, um, but it was mostly their approach of content marketing where they would basically translate what they uh, published in the US. But it was actually, it was not really a discussion um, um, in, the, in the local context. So they had like topics which were not that relevant in the local market, even though it was like the same target audience. Um, and what they did as well after that, they kind of uh, um, saw that it wasn't working. So they tried different things and then they completely lost their focus. Like they would publish on topics that are like very, very remotely related to what they actually do um, just to get some reach and maybe get people to subscribe. But then it wasn't content marketing anymore. It was just like being a publisher and getting a lot of clicks. Um, but it was actually not, um, you know, I didn't work for them, so I don't actually know. But seeing how, um, how the platform worked, I could tell that they were not reaching their marketing goals. Um, so they were kind of trying the spaghetti framework. I don't know if you've heard about this, which is actually not a framework at all. Um, <laughs> throwing content at people and see what sticks or throwing content on the, at the wall and seeing what sticks. So kind of trying a bit of everything and then seeing what uh, seems to work and what not. So that's not really a framework, but that's kind of like what they were doing. And I think they lost um, the only, like the small audience they had, they lost them um, because they tried like different things. So that was like a complete failure. They're trying to recover from it. Um, but it was like, it, it was kind of chaos. And when you looked into the blog, you know, you wouldn't know what you'd get um, the next week in terms of articles being published. So that's kind of a pretty bad sign. So they spent a lot of money and spent a lot of time that they could have saved if they'd done some research up front and thought through their strategy. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I know they hired um, a local employee or someone who was from Germany, but um, or still is from Germany. Um, but the person was rather unexperienced, so I don't, I don't think um, the person knew kind of. Um, all the things you had to consider for um, for the local market, and you know they won't they went full in with digital channels like Twitter, Facebook, you know, like the usual usual um, um, channels. Um, and I actually spoke to them. I said, yeah, you might might want to use more um, thought leadership content and more PR to reach the people who are actually reading the other um, magazines and, and digital channels of publishers, what we talked about before. But actually, they didn't. You know, they st they they were just stuck with their strategy um, focused on digital, and it doesn't seem to work. So um, yeah, I often think of them when I think failures in terms of international marketing. <laughs> Do you think this is one of those examples where the proverbial headquarters back in the home country is not really taking advice from the the new country that if they were listening better they might get it right but the people back home think they know how to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure in this case um they actually do have headquarters um, i mean the headquarters in the u.s but they have an office a big office in europe mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how the relationship is between Europe and the US in that case um, because I didn't work for them. Um, 
and I, I still don't like <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know if that's a factor um, but I do think it's it's a business with a lot of inexperienced people in the sense that um, yeah they don't have a lot of experience in terms of internationalization like they they are experienced I, I, I do think so um, in what they do but in terms of internationalizing um, they were not that experienced of kind of putting everything together and planning this for Europe where to localize and where you could take um, um, the original content etc um, that was kind of new for them I think um, I think that was a bigger factor that's a great story thank you we're just about ready to wrap up here what we typically like to do is ask what question should I have asked you that I didn't? Is there anything you'd like to tell us that you haven't had a chance to say yet? Is there any burning, uh, burning thought or issue that you would like to share? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. A lot. I can mention that my name means king in Breton. Like that's one thing I didn't say. But okay. other than that, you know, <laughs> that is something that everyone should know. And, and, uh, would you like to? Do you, Do you have any resources, books, blogs that you can re recommend that you really like to go to? Any Any people besides your own, which we'll get to in a moment? But do you have any other resources that you think would be really helpful to people? Um, so if we're talking content marketing, I mean, obviously the Content Marketing Institute. Um, in terms of international content marketing, if you're really interested in, in um, localizing contacts, how you can uh, con contact content, um, how you can do it, what you should consider, um, how you should work with um, people locally, uh, and etc. There's a wonderful book by um, Pam Didner. Um, her blog is actually worth a, a thorough read as well. Um, Pam Didner, she wrote a book that's called, it's just called uh, Global Content Marketing. It's a great read. Um, so in terms of international content marketing, I would really, um, I would really read this one. Um, Mark Schaefer's blog is also great. Um, also, he, has, he always has um, um, thoughts um, or, or what you say thought insp or inspiring posts in the sense that it's not just going to be five tips for better content marketing, etc. cetera. It, I, you know, he actually gets you to um, think about things and trends and um, yeah, that would really be, um, that's a great, great blog um, you, you can read. Okay. Um, and yeah, in terms of content marketing, um, I think these are my, like my two favorite blogs in terms of content marketing and international content marketing. So I want to make sure I got this right. The first one was Pam Dittner. Pam Dittner, um, exactly. D-I-D-N-E-R. Dittner. Okay. And then Mark Schaefer? Schaefer, yeah. S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R. Mark Schaefer. Okay. His blog is businessesgrow.com. He's, he's written like uh, uh, the Twitter of Teo, The Content Code, which is actually a great, great book as well. Okay, um, good. You can check it out. <laughs> so I know that many of our listeners would like to follow you and learn more from you, which I'm fortunate enough to do. Would you would you say that your website is the best way that people can find you? Oh yeah. My website is my content hub. So there's gonna be every, you know, my articles and also like Twitter accounts, Facebook, email, etc. 
you can just Google me like M-A-E-L-R-O-T-H, Malroth, and then you'll find me. <laughs> that sounds great. M-A-E-L-R-O-T-H dot com, or they could just Google your name. Yeah. That is great. Thank you so much. This has been so informative and helpful. So thank you for joining us on the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. And for all of our listeners, please join us next time for another podcast in our series on international expansion and check out our resources on global expansion at globig.co. Once again, Mel, thank you so much for your time with us today. This has been really informative. Thanks so much for listening. And yeah, I, I hope it helps. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm very honored to um, you know, be the guest or having been the guest. <laughs> it's, it's so wonderful. Thank you so much. This is Ann Stewart Zakwija, hoping that you all go global and go big. Thank you. Thank you.